Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. First of all, welcome back to Season 4 of Terranauts. As you can see, or rather, as you can hear, we're back for another season of talking about people who work in space without ever leaving the planet. For some of you, it, um, it may sound strange that I make announcing the return of the podcast sound like news, um, but the sad fact of podcasting reality is that continuing a show like Terranauts is always a decision that has to be made explicitly from time to time. Uh, if you follow podcasters, especially what I would call kind of hobby podcasters, you'll likely have heard a lot of what I'm about to say. Uh, in case it was not obvious, Terranauts is very much a labor of love for me, and honestly, and let's call it an act of community service by Mark at SpaceQ, the podcast does not in any way support itself. And it certainly requires a lot of time and effort on my part to create it and um, some non-trivial costs to Mark to manage and publish it. To give you some idea of the scale of the effort, in, in case it wasn't obvious, each bi-weekly episode runs to about uh, 4,000 to 5,000 words, um, all of which have not only to be written down, but they have to be researched first as well. You know, and while I certainly enjoy that process, I'd be lying to you if I described it as uh, effortless. I continue to do it because talking about the human adventure of exploring space is it's just a passion of mine. And also because sharing what I know, or think I do, is also something I'm, I'm just wired to do. And I don't and never have expected to make a living being a podcaster. But that being said, um, there's no point in giving lectures to an audience of chairs every two weeks. Um, the return on my investment of time and effort really is knowing that what I'm saying is interesting to the people who listen to each episode. And yes, part of that feedback comes from the number of people who listen. So, although it may sound trite, I really do live for the feedback that I receive on the podcast. And I know that I have not and um, do not necessarily make that easy. Uh, the sad fact is that while I'm passionate about many things, um, social media isn't one of those things. Still, if you're enjoying Terranauts, or more importantly, maybe if you aren't, please do reach out. Um, you can reach me through the Terranauts Facebook page, through my LinkedIn account, or through my Discord channel. And although you've heard it before and you'll hear it again, I really would love to hear from you. As always, I would also love to find out <laughs> that there were more of you. You can rest assured that we do know how many people listen to the podcast, and we also know that there's lots of room to expand the listener base. Trust me. So, please, if you do enjoy the content, let people know. It really is the best way to show support for the show. Okay, enough of pitch. Um, let's talk about what we have planned for Season 4. Uh, mostly, the firm plans revolve around continuing the description of the history of humanity's journey to space, or as I have sometimes called it, the Terranaut's Guide to Leaving the Planet. Uh, so far, way back in Season 2, uh, we covered the early days of the space program and the first Terranauts, including Werner von Braun and the work done in Nazi Germany during the Second World War, uh, but also uh, how that work was continued 
uh, in the United States after the war with Operation Paperclip. Uh, we have talked about the early days of NASA and how it grew out of its predecessor, NACA, and um, the superpower competition between the U.S. and the USSR that, at least in space in the late 1950s and early 1960s, um, the USSR was clearly winning. In season two, we then basically worked uh, our way through Project Mercury, which got the first U.S. astronauts into space. Uh, last season, we backtracked a little and started following the fate of uh, one of the programs that was the successor to Mercury, and that's the Gemini program. In fact, as we discussed, the Gemini program started actually as an extension of the Mercury program, uh, a way to improve the Mercury capsule and extend and upgrade its capabilities. Um, instead, it ended up being its very own program, designed to be a stepping stone between Mercury and the Apollo program, which was actually also up and running and headed for NASA's rendezvous with the surface of the moon at the same time. Now, when the Gemini program was officially stood up in early 1962, they were expecting that it would build more or less seamlessly on the Mercury experience and thinking that the first Gemini missions would start to launch in 1963, meaning that there wouldn't be a whole lot of a break in the cadence of NASA launches between the last Mercury flight, Gordon Cooper's extended duration mission, which was scheduled for the spring of 1963, and the first Gemini mission. Well, as we talked about, it didn't work out that way. In fact, Gemini would not get off the ground at all until April of 1964, almost a year after Cooper's May 1963 flight, and then eh, the first Gemini mission really was just a test of the new Titan GLV booster, and not really a test of Gemini itself, and it, it didn't involve any U.S. astronauts. In fact, another U.S. astronaut would not get into space for almost another year. And so when Gemini 3 finally launched in March of 1965, NASA, at least the Manned Space Flight Center part of NASA, had been on the ground, effectively, for almost two years. Which is why, dear listener, we spent an awful lot of time on the ground last season. We talked about all of the factors that led to the extension of the Gemini launch schedule and its massive increase in budget. We talked about all of the little engineering details that had to be gotten right, and we also talked about the less obvious but no less important <laughs> programmatic details that also had to be worked out. More importantly, we talked all about testing. Failure analysis, redesign, and retesting that had to be done and redone over and over again. But for NASA, as well as for us, uh, that's all about to change. As I noted, in the 22 months from May of 1963 to March of 1965, between Gordon Cooper's flight and the flight of Gemini 3, the United States did not launch a single human being into space. But, as we're about to find out, in the 20 months from March of 1965 to November of 1966, the U.S. will launch 20 humans into space. Several times NASA will have more than one spacecraft on orbit, and in one memorable episode in December of 1965, they will have four astronauts in two capsules on orbit simultaneously. In March of 1965, uh, NASA owned almost none of the human spaceflight records, and it looked still very much like an also-ran in the space race to some extent. By November of 1966, though, NASA will pretty much own the manned spaceflight record book, including most humans to have been to space, most humans in space at the same time, longest duration flight, total time on orbit, total number of launches, most EVAs, most time spent on EVA, first successful rendezvous in station keeping, first docking of two spacecraft. 
by 1966, November of 1966, NASA, in its own mind and in the eyes of the world, will be aimed squarely at the moon and will be accelerating away from the competition. That is the story that we're going to tell, at least in the first part of Season 4. I'm not sure exactly how many episodes it will take. Once we've wrapped up the Gemini program, we're going to go back again and start to look at the granddaddy of them all, the Apollo program. Uh, let's face it, it was, and for many people still is, the main event in humanity's journey off the planet. Still the only time that our journey to space has ever placed a human being not only on the surface of another celestial body, but actually the only time we've even put a human in orbit around anything other than the blue marble we call home. It's going to be a journey that will take us to the end of this season for sure, and probably a long ways beyond that. Uh, you know, but before we get started on that journey, um, speaking of the moon, I, I wanted to make a quick digression uh, in this first episode of season four, because I was struck uh, a few weeks ago with the similarities between the situation of the Gemini program just before it started flying and, and the current situation on the Artemis program. And I guess for anybody who's joining us at a later date, um, this is uh, the end of September 2022. Uh, like the Gemini program, the Artemis program is trying to get NASA back into the business of launching humans into space after a pretty extensive hiatus. I mean, NASA's been getting humans into orbit since the end of the shuttle program. Uh, all of those flights were using somebody else's resources, though. Uh, NASA has actually not flown a new human-rated rocket for almost 10 years. And it hasn't flown a rocket that's capable of getting humans to the moon and back in almost 50 years. And to be clear, uh, no one else has either. Despite a lot of comparisons being made between Artemis and other launchers, there is no other launcher that is being tested to go to the moon with humans on board and come back. Uh, like Gemini, Artemis is using technology that's derived from an earlier program. In Gemini's case, it was obviously the Mercury program. In Artemis's case, it's the shuttle program. But like Gemini, Artemis is uh, very different than the program that came before. And like Gemini, its objectives are quite different than the earlier program. But also, like Gemini, the spotlight is now on Artemis. And like it or not, it will be compared not only to its predecessor, but to other efforts that are currently underway. And as we've already seen, there will be those who seek to find ways to make that comparison uh, unkindly and probably unfairly as well. All of which means that A, it's very important that the initial mission go well, and B, while it looks like something that's been done before, um, there still is an awful lot of the little details that need to be made right in order for the team to have the confidence that they're going to be successful. And, and to be clear, I don't want to start a debate over whether NASA's approach is the right one, and I don't want to actually debate the merits of the various ways humanity has of getting off the planet. For me, as a Terranaut, my thoughts are with the, any team that's trying to achieve the feat of getting off the planet, especially one that's attempting to get so far off the planet and come home again safely. For those reasons alone, um, the NASA Artemis team definitely has my support. I'm pretty sure I know how hard they have worked, and I'm certain I know how hard the feat they're trying to achieve is, and always will be. And when I look back at the Gemini program, I can't but help but seeing the comparison. Like the Gemini engineers, program managers, and technicians, the Artemis team has spent a lot of time getting to the launch pad. Uh, a lot longer than they, any of them probably thought they would. Like those Gemini Terranauts, they have doubtlessly been down an awful lot of dead ends. 
They've almost certainly been through a lot of tests that revealed issues that they did not know they had. But like the Gemini team, and every other space program team, that has gone before them every time they find one of those issues in dead ends, and they've been building a critical mass of understanding of their vehicle and its systems. In fact, if you know what to look for, um, you can see this experience, uh, even in the public coverage of the launches they've attempted so far. You can see it even in the way that the countdown is structured and executed. Um, you can see it when the team is triaging the various anomalies as they arise during the countdown. Uh, it's clear even from the communications that you can hear, which is only a very small tip of the iceberg, that the team clearly knows the difference between something that isn't a threat to the launch and the mission and something that is. And um, although that difference is not immediately clear always, they do know what questions to ask to find out. Now, those differences uh, are not all, at all obvious to those of us outside the team. And you even get the sense that that sometimes mystifies some of the commentators. There's a, there's a bit of an air of the, what are they not telling us, to some of the reporting, implying that because something isn't obvious outside the Launch Control Center, um, but is obvious inside it, that NASA is actually not telling the whole story. Eh, in truth, I just think that when you spend years developing a system as complicated as Artemis, you simply know things that can't be learned any other way. To understand what's going on in some of these cases, you just need to have the experience that the team has to understand the whole picture uh, that they see. I'm dwelling on this uh, because it has struck me over the past few weeks that what the Artemis team is going through is really pretty much the quintessential Terranaut experience. Uh, over the past number of years, they have been developing the expertise and experience to do something that hasn't been done before, at least not in the way that they're trying to do it. For all of that time, and continuously, every day, they're projecting their hard-won experience forward into an environment that they can't experience with their senses, and that they will always have to experience through the telemetry data that they have designed into their system, and with their own ability to synthesize and understand what that telemetry data is telling them. By now, anyone on the team is probably literally able to glance at that mass of data and see the pattern that should, uh, or should not, be there, in ways that those of us who have not done it just can't understand. In case it wasn't obvious, I'm impressed by what the Artemis team is doing, and I'm a little bit jealous, too. I believe that, thankfully, whatever anyone else says or thinks, they won't go until they're ready. <laughs> and until Mother Nature is ready to let them go as well, which is another fundamental feature of the Terranaut experience, I can tell you. And because of that, I also believe that however difficult these past few weeks have been, when the Artemis team does go, I really believe it will accelerate to orbit and beyond, just as Gemini did 60 years ago. I'm looking forward to watching them. Um, and I think, you know, that's where we're going to leave it for this first episode in Season 4 of Terranauts, rather than starting on talking about actually how Gemini proceeded from a very similar spot in their history. I know it's a little bit of a shorter episode this time, um, and it really was less about history and a bit more about current events, but if it wasn't obvious, it's something I'm passionate about and something about which I really wanted to have my say. Now, next time, I promise we will go back to 1965 and watch the Gemini program as it accelerates out of the starting gate and towards the finish line. But that's going to be all for now. 
Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.